After the battle, Samuel sets up a stone of remembrance and calls it an Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. So just in time for Christmas season, if you're watching uh, Scrooge, you recognize that his name is Ebenezer. And that means that it is a, you know, there's a stone of help there. This was a reminder to Israel. The stone of help was a reminder to Israel that God helped them, that God sustained them, that God gave them the victory, that they are utterly dependent upon God. So for generations to come, the Israelites would walk by this stone and say, remember that time God delivered us. Think about the significance of that. Generation after generation, seeing this stone, having their parents pointed out and saying, God delivered us on this day. And they would tell the story over and over again, and it would be such a great reminder of the absolute dependency that they had on God. So I consider today our six-year anniversary an Ebenezer. It is an Ebenezer for my family and for Calvary Bible Church because it is the anniversary of my first Sunday. So it's a day to remember that God brought us here. That after four years of searching for a pastor, think about that. There were faithful few that remained here, that were steadfast here, that prayed for a fat pastor, and for four years were searching for one, and finally they found one to call. And after 11 years of being in ministry and a youth pastor and always saying that I didn't want to be a senior pastor— God called me and my family to Flagstaff because he has a ministry here for us. So it is a day to remember that God doesn't need men to do his work. He will get things done. Whether I answered the call or not, God was going to get the work done. But it pleases God to use us, that he has an assignment for us. And by patiently waiting on God, Calvary Bible Church found their pastor And that we are completely dependent upon him because he causes growth. And in all honesty, sometimes he prunes. So when we first started here, there was about 20 people. God has caused growth. But I'm not so arrogant to say that he will never prune. And sometimes God prunes a church. And we have to be faithful even when he's pruning. And sometimes that means that, that the church growth actually, that there is no growth or that declines, that it shrinks. Sometimes God calls people away. Sometimes he prunes through different avenues. But it's helpful to remember that God does the pruning. But even in the midst of seasons of pruning, we can always trust God. So I'm going to invite Bob to come on up. As a reminder of this day, I like to renew the pastoral covenant I made with the congregation on that day six years ago. The church looked much different then. Uh, if anybody remembers, we had pews up here actually still. So uh, yeah, a lot has changed physically. I think a lot has changed spiritually. But one thing that hasn't changed is God's faithfulness. So uh, this, uh, this pastoral covenant renewal is an important thing for me. It's a reminder of that God called us here, but it's also a reminder to the congregation. So Bob is actually going to lead the congregation in a charge to the congregation. So Bob, I'll let you go ahead and lead that. So I'm going to read a statement and then uh, you may answer, uh, we will. Will you commit to honor the scripture by recognizing it as God's inerrant, all-sufficient, living, and authoritative word? Will you commit to self sacrificially and courageously seek the salvation of the lost by every biblical means and labor to spread the gospel to all peoples? Will you commit to lay aside your personal preferences in order to strive for the unity of the church, desiring with all your actions to build up the body while forsaking all gossip slander, and foolish talk, realizing that you will give an account to God for every idle word. Will you commit to stand alongside your pastor in enacting loving church discipline when necessary, 
for the purpose of individual repentance and restoration, the honor of Christ and the purity of the church. Will you honor your pastor and follow him as he follows Christ, honoring him as Christ's under shepherd, ordaining, excuse me, ordained by God to keep watch over your souls? And will you let him do this with joy and not with groaning? Will you commit to love your pastor, praying for him, rather than complaining about him, honoring him as one who labors in the word and doctrine for the good of your soul and recognizing him as the shepherd God has given you. Will you commit to give sacrificially of your time, resources, and energies <coughs> excuse me, to the work of the church, employing your spiritual gifts for the edification of the church and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Will you commit to faithfully attend the preaching of the word of God in corporate worship and receive the word, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God? Thank you. Oh, I make a lot of mistakes. Uh, so complaining is an easy thing to do when you're around somebody that makes a lot of mistakes. So that's an important one. And I appreciate you guys not complaining about me and the plethora of mistakes I make. But, so that's the charge to the congregation. But there is also a charge to myself. And within that charge, uh, I'll go ahead and, and walk through that charge to myself as well. Uh, as a pastor of Calvary Bible Church, I will strive to exercise the duties of my office in such a way as to have a clear conscience before God and man. Being in a position of spiritual leadership, I will pray, prayerfully seek to maintain the qualifications as given in 1 Timothy 3. I will strive to lead the flock of God in a balanced ministry of shepherding, teaching, and evangelizing. Furthermore, I will seek above all things to promote the unity of the Spirit, being ready always for suggestions when given for the glory of God and the furtherance of his work. I will seek to be sensitive to God's leading to know when my present ministry is completed and will graciously resign. If at any time I'm unwilling to submit to the authority of the official board or the Calvary Bible Church Constitution, I want the official board to call it to my attention. If I fail to be reconciled, I will resign immediately and will quickly and quietly leave the field, causing no trouble which would damage the church. Those are important words for me. They're not just words that, that I like to repeat. Every, and the reason why I do it every year is it's a reminder. It's a reminder, one, that God is faithful, that God is actually the one over this church, that, that God has used me in a way in this church, but I can't take credit for anything that any type of growth numerically or spiritually that takes place at this church. It is God. And therefore, I have to trust him if I ever go against the board and the Constitution, that I would quietly walk away as to not damage this church. So as we reflect on this Ebenezer, I'd like to take some time to talk about the direction of Calvary Bible Church. So if you are new here, if this is your first time, this isn't how we often do things. We typically go through a uh, series that is examining scripture. We, we teach scripture verse by verse. We walk through it. But this week is a little bit different. This week, because it is uh, the, ca uh, the, the pastoral covenant renewal, we're actually going to talk about the vision of the church and, and the direction that this church is going. And then I'm going to transition into uh, one uh, theological issue that has kind of popped up recently, and a lot of people have been asking me questions uh, about uh, women's roles in the church. So I want to talk through that a little bit as well. But first I want to talk about the, the vision of the church, what, what direction we are uh, heading in 2024 and beyond. So as a, as a pastor, I tend to lean more toward freedom of expression my style is typically to equip, encourage, and be amazed by what people do. I'm not a very authoritarian person. Just by nature, I'm not authoritarian. 
I don't try, I don't want to be, and I don't try to be the Holy Spirit in your life. But sometimes I can lean, I think, too far in that direction. And as a result, I, I don't communicate direction, the direction of the church very well. And I want to apologize for that. I don't always communicate the direction of the church as well as I could. And also, I typically see, when I study and I I look at theology, I see a lot of nuance in theology. And so I like to give a lot of freedom when it comes to differing theological opinions. But uh, the result of both my lack of casting vision and sometimes my lack of, like, here is the clear teach, here is the teaching that we are going to stick to as a church is something that looks like this. If you can see these roads here, they kind of all go in different directions. Uh, if you can actually figure out what direction any one of those roads is going, that's, uh, you're better than I am. Because I can't figure it out, right? So what happens when a pastor doesn't communicate direction clearly is a lot of people begin to usurp the vision on themselves. And what happens when a pastor doesn't communicate the theology of the church clearly is a lot of people begin to usurp that theology in of, of, the, of themselves. And so the, the, the result looks like this. So I want to get away from this type of direction where everybody's kind of going off on their own. Now, that doesn't mean that, that there's still not freedom in this church. I believe there is a lot of freedom. We'll talk a, a lot more about that. But I, wa- I want to do... And what I want to begin to do more often is address Calvary Bible Church's direction so that all the congregation can know what, be- what we believe and why we believe it and the direction we are heading instead of trying to guess. So I want to start off by, by reaffirming the purpose of Calvary Bible Church. Calvary Bible Church exists for two reasons, to effectively communicate the word of God, thereby promoting the spiritual development of believers and equipping them for service, and to seek the salvation of the lost, both at home and throughout the world, by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as Savior. So there's a lot going into that. We could summarize it into this one statement. Calvary Bible Church exists so that all should come to know Christ and grow in him. We could shorten it down even even further and say, we exist that all would come to know and grow in Christ. That is the purpose. That is why we exist. That is why we gather together. That is why you invest time, talent, and treasure into this church so that people would come to know Christ and mature in their position in Christ. People would come to know Christ and grow in him. So that's why we exist, that all would come to know and grow in Christ. Say it with me. The purpose of Calvary Bible Church is that all would... Right on. Yes. There was a little bit of a different cadence there. That's okay. I, heard, I think I heard everybody say it, right? So, so that all would come to know and grow in Christ. That is the purpose. Everything else falls underneath that. So this is what we will strive for as a church, sharing Christ so that others would come to know him and to teach the word so that all would grow in him. I believe the natural result of this knowing is authentic Christian community. As we mature in our knowledge of Christ, as we mature in who Christ made us to be, and as we mature in our God-given assignment in this world, we naturally become more relational. And that actually helps us think through what we do as a church. So part of that is we don't have a big like master uh, strategy or big master plan for how we are going to reach the lost in Doney Park and Flagstaff. Well, maybe I'll pull back a little bit. The master plan is that as we grow and mature in Christ through the knowledge of his word, that he would mature us to to engage in people that are non-believers. That we would as non-believe or as believers who are mature in the faith make relationships with non-believers and share the gospel with them that's the strategy for for evangelism that's the strategy that people would come to know Christ it's not a program it's not a big push it's simply a church that is growing and maturing and because we are growing and maturing we have a deep faith and that deep faith then gets expressed in sharing Christ with others.
So my job and the job of the leadership of this church is not to develop community because community naturally flows from our knowledge of Christ, from maturing in Christ. That's how community develops. So our job is not to have a bunch of community events. It's not to have a bunch of parties. That's one reason why this church doesn't look like a community center, because we are not a community center. Instead, we believe that this community comes naturally. It naturally develops and occurs outside of the church building. It occurs outside of the church building. As people who gather to encourage each other in their faith, then people begin to invite others into their homes. I believe there's an open house at the Young's house today. You can go get to know them a little more. Or you invite people out to coffee, or for a hike, or maybe it's to go cut wood. So as we mature in our faith, people begin to invite others into their lives. So we have purposely not created a team that decides, like, who gets helps, who, who needs help, who, and, and there's this big administrative arm deciding who's going to help who, who's going to be in whose community. Instead, we believe that this community comes naturally and occurs outside the church building as people who gather to encourage each other. Because we thoroughly believe that as the congregation matures, as we mature in the faith, people will be taken care of by other believers in the congregation without an administrative push, but naturally through relationships. And one of the reasons why I like this is because it makes people less like projects. When we have a big administrative arm that says, these are the people that need help, now we're going to organize a help. People become projects. And we don't see them as equals and co-equals in Christ. We see them as people that, well, you know, I'm a little bit better so I can help. But when this occurs naturally through relationships, people are less like projects and more like friends who care for each other. And I see that. I see that in this congregation. You may not know everything that is going on. And, and the way this occurs, no one is actually going to know everything that is happening in this church, including me. I don't get to see every relationship. I don't know everyone that is doing something for someone else. In fact, I don't know everyone that is actually leading a Bible study. There are Bible studies who, who people who have just felt called start gathering people together and say, hey, let's study the word together. And I don't know all of those that are happening. And that's okay. Because I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I trust the Holy Spirit in this congregation to build the relationships that the Holy Spirit desires to build. So I trust the Holy Spirit to direct you into the relationships that he has called you to. So I don't know everything that is going on. I don't know every person who is helping someone else out. But I do see a lot of people who love each other stepping up to fill the needs of others. And it is happening naturally because I see a congregation that continues to mature in Christ. A congregation that continues to mature in the faith. So if we're not a community center and my job is not a community organizer, then what are we doing? Well, I would say my job description comes directly from Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. I brought my small Bible today. Sorry, I, I did not have it marked. It is up here. I can just read it from up here, right? All right, I'm here. Here we go. All right, so Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So I would say I'm a shepherd and teacher. That's my job here, to shepherd the flock, to pastor the flock. It, throughout the New Testament, pastor, elder, or I should say, yeah, shepherd, elder, overseer, those, are, those, those three are interchangeable. That's my job. And a big way that a shepherd shepherds is through teaching. So pastor, teacher, that's, that's one job here, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So God 
brought me here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what's going on here is, is God has given pastors to help build up, help mature, help grow the congregation in the faith. Now, what's interesting here is that as we equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and that describes the congregation. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are a saint. Oftentimes we get confused because we think saints are like Mother Teresa or, you know, Billy Graham, or you think of someone that has dedicated their whole life to God. And, And throughout the New Testament, we find actually that anyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ is called a saint. You are a saint. God has made you a saint. Now, you may not act like a saint, but God has made you a saint. So the the idea then is start acting like how God has called you. Positionally, he has made you a saint. Start to act it out. Start to live like it. So my job is to equip the saint through teaching, through, through explanation of theological ideas, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, did you catch that? That my job isn't actually the work of the ministry? That's your job. My job is to teach and equip so that the saints will do the work of the ministry. And as the saints gather together, as they mature in the faith and understanding of the word, and they do the work of the ministry, then we grow together in unity. of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood. So we gather together, we, we uh, equip the saints, we mature together, and then we're no longer swayed by faulty doctrine. Being, part of being unified is realizing that there are nuances in Scripture and that others who don't hold the same view as you aren't heretics. So there are some heretics out there who don't hold the same view as you, but not everyone is a heretic. Sometimes we get a little too quick to throw that word around, but there are nuances in Scripture. Sometimes people just simply have a different reading. So part of our job is to wrestle with Scripture, and as we wrestle with Scripture, we begin to give people with different views more freedom. So the way to be unified isn't by having the exact same theology. If everyone here were to have the exact same theology, and that was the only way we could be unified, there'd be a church of one, and then eventually a church of none. There's an old joke, I think I've told it before, but there's, there's the, uh, these guys find this uh, the island with one person on it, and one person, but there's three churches, and they're like, well, I understand why you have this church, but what's up with the other church? And he's like, oh, I had a disagreement with those people. It was a deserted island, you know, get it? But that's true, right? Like, there are times when we, when we read the word, and as we're reading the word, it actually changes, and hopefully this is happening for you, it actually changes your theology. I have seen huge theological shifts in my life because I have a better understanding of the word. I'm like, oh, okay. Now, I'll get into some, uh, some theological terms for you. I grew up in mid-Acts dispensational church with open theism. Uh, if you don't know what that is, I'd love to tell you one day. But, but the more I studied scripture, the more I realized that doesn't line up. And I had a huge, I actually ended up leaving the church because I, I was like, no, I want to conform my theology to what the word says, not read my theology into the word. So our idea is to wrestle with scripture But we can't have the exact same theology. None of us can. In fact, we won't even have the exact same theology with ourselves. So we so unity isn't isn't conforming to the exact same thing, but holding tight to the fundamentals and then giving freedom in secondary issues. So I want to talk a little bit more about fundamentals that unify us a little bit later. But I want to get back into this. As we mature in the knowledge of the word, authentic Christian community develops. So as we grow in the knowledge of the word and application of the word in our lives, then we mature in God's grace. And our relationships will flow out of that maturity. So as an elder board, we have purpose to invest in areas that help us grow in our understanding of the word. 
So we're not a program-driven church, but we do have a few programs that help us grow. We have a Sunday service, Sunday school, Edge, Awana, Teen Awana, Wednesday night Bible study and prayer, and Connect group. We also have Zeal, Men's Breakfast, and Evergreen uh, Women's Ministry. So Sunday service is the primary place where teaching is happening. Each Sunday, we walk through parts of Scripture and explain what it means. We go verse by verse. This is a time of teaching and of praise. Praise is important because it reminds us, of, reminds us of who God is and who we are. And man, we get into a lot of problem when we forget who God is and who we are because of who he is. Along with Sunday service, we also have Sunday school to help us grow in our knowledge of the word. So we have explored in Sunday school such topics as Old Testament and New Testament survey, how to read scripture, apologetics, church history, the life of Christ, and currently we've been talking about what does the church say about, or I should say, what does the word say about relationships? How should we view relationships based on the word? Today we talked about, we just barely hit on marriage because it's such a big topic. We've also been investing our time, talent, and treasures into EDGE. EDGE stands for Exploring, Discovering, and discovering God's earth. Because we believe having an understanding and defense of a young earth creationist perspective can help us mature in the faith. We also have Awana and Tinawana. They're both programs that help our kids know scripture. The Awana and Tinawana both help kids write scripture on their hearts. And I can't tell you how many adults I have seen come through our doors and say, I gave my life to Christ here at Awana. Awana is an incredibly important program at our church that is investing in the kids and the, and the church. I can't tell you beyond the ones that have come to know Christ, there are several others that have come in and said, you know what? I memorized so much scripture at Awana. And one day, actually, I, I walked away. I walked away from Christ, I walked away from the church, and yet these pieces of scripture that I memorized at Awana kept coming back. And in my, in my full rebellion against God, the verses from Awana were the ones that drew me back to him. It is a tremendous ministry that occurs on Monday night and Wednesday night. We also have Wednesday night Bible study and prayer led by Bob who gave the charge to the congregation. One thing that I love that they do is before getting into a book of the Bible, they read the entire thing in one setting. That, have, that has scared a few people away. But I love it because it gives a context that we so often neglect. We love to pull verses out. We love to pull sections out and just study this one little bit. But when you read an entire letter in context, oh boy, does it give you a greater understanding. So if you've noticed, most of what we have is very head or knowledge heavy because we know what we believe determines how we behave. Theology matters because what we believe impacts if we will grow in Christ. We cannot grow in Christ if our beliefs are all wrong. On the other side of that, knowledge without connecting it to the heart or knowledge without application just puffs up. Someone with a lot of knowledge but very little application will also not grow or mature in Christ. So in the past, we've had multiple connect groups. And this is the reason why we have connect groups. Connect groups exist to connect the head with the heart to, okay, now that you've learned this, how do you apply it? And it also exists connect, to connect our hearts together or to help facilitate community. Essentially, here is the theology now. How do we apply it to our lives? In the past, we've had multiple connect groups by different names. I would like to see multiple connect groups again for a couple different reasons. One is connect groups are a great tool for leadership development. During connect groups, we get to see how different people would handle the word. 
but also we get to see how they would handle shepherding people in their group. I think it's a great place to see if people are ready for leadership. The second reason is as, church, as the church grows in size, connect groups are an important way for people to feel a part of the community. When we first started, the congregation was right around 20. At 20 people, we all feel very close. It felt like a very tight-knit family. We all knew each other. We knew each other well. But as we grow in numbers, it gets more difficult to know people, to get to know people. It gets more difficult to feel like you are in that family type of group or community. So having people over into your home and connecting with others in a home setting is helpful to produce community. And the last reason that I think connect groups are so important and why I would love to see more of them develop and more people in them is it has to do with the potential for persecution in the future. So, it's, uh, so we can see a traje- trajectory that our culture is going towards. We see that it is becoming less and less popular to be Christian. Some people predict that, there, that, it, that within uh, a few generations, it could even be illegal to be Christian in America. So, what as a church should we do? Well, it's easy to track down and shut down a church, right? This church building. It's easy to track. It's easy to know who the pastor is. But how about a group that meets in the home? In his book, The Starfish and the Spider, Malcolm Gladwell lays out an argument for decentralized organizations. So he compares a spider with a starfish. The spider, which so many people love to hate. Do we have any spider lovers in here? Is anybody that's like, I love spiders. And, and if you see a spider in your house, you like protect it all the way to the outside. I know there are people like that. I know there are some people. That's okay. That's okay. God has gifted you in an amazing way. Not the way most people are, are gifted. But it has a central nervous system. So when you cut off its head, but let's face it, Most people don't just cut off a head. They want to squash that spider into oblivion, right? But if you cut off its head, it dies. But the starfish doesn't have a central nervous system. When you cut them in half, you just made two two starfish. So this actually became a huge problem at the Great Barrier Reef because divers had been told that starfish were destroying the reef. So in an effort to help protect the reef, divers were going down and cutting the starfish in half, and actually what they, what they thought was helping was actually making the problem even worse because every time they cut a starfish in half, you now have two starfish. So then Gladwell goes ahead and, and applies this principle to organizations. And he uses an example of the Spanish conquest of the Southwest. So why did the Aztec fall so quickly? Well, the Spanish could never conquer the Apache. He argues that it's because the Aztec had a centralized government. While the Apache were organized in groups that were held together by values. So when I think about future church and persecution in America, it's easy to cut off the head when there's a huge centralized or uh, uh, governing system, right? When we have a huge administration, lots of paid staff, well, it's easy. But when we have a bunch of communities meeting in houses, more difficult to track. And even if you track down one house church, that doesn't mean that you can kill all of them. So I think community or connection groups are important for the future of the church. But that does lead us to what are the values that are keeping us together? As we become less centralized, and let's face it, my personality has never been about like, let's keep the the church centralized around me. That's never been a vision that I've had. So as we are less centralized, what holds us together as an organization and as a group of people that that desire to grow, that all would come to know and grow in Christ? 
And I think it starts off first with God's grace and his goodness. Knowing that it is through recognition of what God has done for us, that he has made us righteous, that he has called us saints, it is through that recognition that actually causes our hearts to change, which will actually change our behavior. If we want to have righteous behavior, it has to come from a changed heart. And a changed heart comes from God, not from ourselves. We cannot white-knuckle our behavior to make us righteous. So along with this idea is a dependency on God that comes through brokenness. And I think that's so important. That, that our brokenness, recognizing our flaws, can actually unify us and hold us together. Because it is through our brokenness that we realize dependency upon God. So realizing that I can't do it myself, that I'm not righteous on my own, I need God. And when we operate out of a dependency on God that comes through our brokenness before him, we are more humble and offer more grace to others. So another thing that holds us together is the inerrancy of Scripture. With a hermeneutic that matches, we believe that, that Scripture is inerrant, and then we have a hermeneutic that is a historical, grammatical, and contextual hermeneutic. Now, a hermeneutic simply means how do you read the Bible? When you read Scripture, how do you read it? And we want to read it with a lens through uh, uh, the history. So we want to look back and say, historically, what did this mean? What, what would it have meant to the original audience? That's, that's, uh, the, grim, or, sorry, that's the cultural context. What did it mean to the original audience? When Paul says, oh man, I was going to use an example, but last time I used it, I got kissed. But now I've already said it, so I, I'm going to go with it. When Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, culturally, what does he mean? Please don't kiss me later on today. Or <laughs> but, but what does he mean? You know, we want to we look at the culture. What does that mean? Another one is, is, is there's a lot of idioms that are used. So what did those idioms mean? So we want to look at the historical context. We want to look at the cultural context. And we also want to look at the grammatical context. There are so many issues that get resolved from looking at the, just the, the context in which the word is used. We might get into that later. I'm going a little long, so I don't even know if we'll get to it. But, but that's, that holds us together. And through this reading, actually, through our hermeneutic of a uh, historical, grammatical, and, and uh, cultural context that actually, I think, leads us to a dispensational systematic. Now, a lot of you have never heard the term dispensational systematic or dispensation. That's okay. But we are a dispensational church. Uh, dispensation simply, dispensational systematic simply means that we believe God has worked in, in humanity throughout different economic, economies or different systems. That's simply what it means. There are two major systematics. There's a dispensational systematic and a covenantial systematic. And, you know, I love our covenantial systematic brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. I listen to some of them every day. If you are familiar with Albert Moeller, I listen to Albert Moeller almost every day. He is a covenantial systematic. I disagree with a lot of what he says, but I still greatly respect him as a Christian brother. However, him and I are probably not going to go to the same church because it really affects the way we read scripture. So I would say a, a hermeneutic that looks at the historical, cultural, and grammatical context that produces a dispensational viewpoint holds us together. And if you are here today and you are a covenantial, you look, you're, you lean towards a covenantial systematic, I love you dearly. But you're probably not in the same boat. And there are lots of great covenantial churches that you can attend. So the, another one is the deity of Christ, that Jesus is both God and man. The atoning death that is only through faith in Christ that we can be made holy. And his bodily resurrection. As far as church governance, governance goes, we are what's called an elder-led congregational church. So the elders lead. 
but they do not lord it over the congregation. The elders have authority, and what I think we totally misunderstand what authority means. We think authority means boss, and I think authority means that they have a responsibility to present people or to help people grow and flourish in the word. That applies to uh, marriage as well. If a man has authority in the marriage, then his job is to present, to provide an environment where his wife is going to flourish and thrive, not to be her boss. But that doesn't mean that the congregation has no voice. So the congregation is still very, very important in an elder-led congregational church. So these are the values that hold us together. But if the analogy is like we're all in the same boat, and these values hold us in the boat, and we are in the same boat... Because of these values, are we all rowing together? If we're in the same boat and we're being held together by these values, but someone is rowing in a different way, it can be very frustrating. Not just for everybody in the boat, or not just for everybody that's rowing this way, but for the few that are rowing in the opposite direction. So we need to be in the boat together, and we need to be rowing together. So how do you know if you are not rowing with the rest of us in the boat? I think one of the best gauges is when everyone else is going one direction, are you complaining about that direction? If you feel like this church is always doing something wrong, you might be unified with us in, in these values that, that are unifying but you might be heading in a different direction than we are. If you are always grumbling to others about what's going on, if you are complaining about what is happening in this church, you might be in the boat with us sharing the same values, but you might be rowing in a different direction. When everyone else is celebrating and you're sitting on the side criticizing, that's evidence that you are in the same boat, but rowing in a different direction. And I really, I feel for those who are in the same boat, but are rowing in a different direction. Because I think it's a really tough place to be. It's a very lonely place. Oftentimes when you're in the same boat, but you're rowing in a different direction, you feel left out and you feel discouraged. And oftentimes you even feel like the bad guy. And my intention is not to make you feel like the bad guy, but to help you realize that you might be rowing in a different direction. So I think there are two solutions. If you have discovered that you are in the same boat, you're unified around the fundamentals of the faith with us, but you're rowing in a different direction, what is the solution? And I think there's two solutions. One is... Start rowing in the same direction. Start rowing in the same direction. Stop criticizing. Put away some of your personal preferences and begin to row with the rest of us. But if that doesn't seem like a solution to you, if you're like, no, I have, I have too many problems with the direction that we're going, and you don't feel like you can row with the rest of us, then the other solution is find a different church. And I say that with the utmost love. There are a lot of good churches in Flagstaff. Surely you can find one where you will be unified through the same values, unified through the same fundamentals, and, and have the ability to row with the rest of the church. And I say that out of love for you because I know that it is so painful to be unified in a boat and to be rowing in the wrong direction. So I want to encourage you, if you find yourself rowing in the wrong direction, either start rowing in the, in the direction with the rest of us or find a new church. So, so we're all in the same boat. And one of the reasons why we, why we love connect groups is because if persecution comes and cuts off our head and we can no longer meet in this building, if it gets bad enough that it's illegal to be Christian, we can still connect at our houses. 
So we see connect groups as the connection point. It has both relationship and knowledge. It is a way to connect our hands with our heart, and it's a way to connect with one another. It is a training ground for new leaders. It is a place to be known and to know others. So we want to continue to invest in the programs we have, and we want to multiply our connect groups. We as a congregation desire to wrestle with Scripture, to listen to differing interpretations that take in cultural, historical, and grammatical context of Scripture to help us understand it more. Now, one of those places that we see the roads kind of starting to twist and turn and some questions that I've had is, what are women's role in the church? What is a woman's role in the church? And so I kind of want to give us a, a little perspective from the church, a little historical perspective from what Calvary Bible Church has, uh, has always believed. But I want to give this disclaimer that a lot of viewpoints on women's roles in the church have been made off of the definition of a couple rare words that are actually hard to define. So, uh, so there is a lot of grace. And one of the reasons why this is such a sticking point is because it is a difficult, th- there are difficult passages to interpret. But I also think this is so important because we live in a world right now, we live in a culture right now that wants to erase women. So what, if, if we're living in a culture that wants to erase women, what is a woman's role in the church? In a world that doesn't even know how to define what a woman is, we need to talk about women in the church. I'm going to make it really brief. Uh, in fact, we're just going to barely touch upon it, but I, but I want to give you what our church's stance is. So we need to talk about women in the church. In fact, I'd be so bold to say that women are essential for having a congregation that is maturing. Women are essential for a congregation that is going to grow and mature in Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2 real quick. This is one of those passages that causes uh, the most controversy. And we'll just, uh, we'll just read verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. All right, so most people read that, and what do you think? Okay, women, just be quiet. You can't teach. Just maybe some people won't say shut up. Some people might go that far to be like, okay, just shut up, girls. The men are in the house, right? So some people will read it like that. But I think we have to, one, we have to reconcile Scripture with Scripture. And we know from 1 Corinthians that Paul actually endorsed women speaking in the church because he addresses their behavior while using gifts of prophecy and tongues while in the church. Well, at the church, women are using gifts of tongues and prophecy at the church, in the church setting. So women are actually speaking. We also know that Priscilla taught Apollos. Now, she didn't teach Apollos in a church setting. She wasn't up. She, she didn't hear Apollos teaching or preaching and say, move over, Apollos, it's my turn. That's not how it happened. She actually took him aside along with her husband and taught him. So if, if we see that women in the New Testament have taught and have spoken in the church, what on earth does this mean when Paul says, I do not permit women to teach or, ex- or have authority over a man. And I think the first question that needs to be answered is, is teaching and authority one thing or two different things that Paul is not allowing? Now, Timothy Keller and uh, quite a few other theologians make the argument that it is actually one thing. Uh, the word or is ude in the Greek, and ude actually binds two different ideas together into one. So if you have two, an idea of teaching and you have an idea of authority, the word ude actually makes it into one aspect. So we wouldn't read it, I do not permit women to teach. Also, I do not, women to, I do not permit women to have authority. Instead, it is, I do not permit women to practice independent authority through their teaching. But that leads us to the question of authority. Now, interestingly, this is a rare word used 
uh, for authority. It's only used once in the entire New Testament. And then uh, through ancient manuscripts all over, just different types of manuscripts that we've discovered, I think it's only used eight more times in 300 years of built-up manuscripts. This word, authenteo, is the word you hear used for authority. Now, there's a lot, because it's such a rare word, there's a lot of debate about what this word means. Uh, It can mean to dominate, usurp authority, or have an unhealthy authority, or an independent authority. I think whenever you come, going back to our hermeneutic, right? Whenever you come to a word that's rarely used, and you don't really know what it means, the best thing to do is actually look into the context. And we don't have a whole ton of time to get into the context here, but right after this section, so, so we get into verse 12, I do not ex- uh, uh, permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. And then next he's going to appeal, the immediate context is he's going to appeal to what's called creation order. For Adam was not deceived, or for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So what is he appealing to here? He's appealing to creation order. Creation order is this theological idea that God made Adam first. And then he made Eve. And then we can, if we look at Ephesians uh, 5, where he gives the, uh, where Paul addresses marriage, and he says, he, he appeals to creation order as well, but he says that uh, men have authority, or husbands have authority over their wives, wives need to submit to their husbands, and then we get this whole picture of what authority actually means. Authority, once again, doesn't mean to be the boss. It means to provide an environment in which that person will thrive. So the elders team, the elder who have the elders who have authority here, our job isn't to be the boss, but to provide an environment in which people will grow and mature in Christ. So that's the appeal is to a creation order. That Adam is the one who is supposed to be providing the environment in which Eve would thrive. But what do we read next? And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, most people will then right away just point the finger to Eve and say, you done did mess up, Eve. That's why you can't have authority. But who was it actually that messed up? I think it's actually Adam. Because he wasn't providing the environment in which Eve was going to thrive. Therefore, she was deceived. But if we skip in to the next chapter... Now, most people, you know, once again, because we have chapters and we have verses, they, they end at this section, and they say, okay, we're done with talking about women's issues. Now we're on to, what is this? Oh, qualifications for overseers. Now we're on to this issue, and that's divorcing the context. I think within the context, the very next thing he says is the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So when we look at it as in a contextual capacity, I think what Paul is saying here is, I do not permit women to be elders or to have the authority of eldership. Now, when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we don't see a single example of a woman as an elder. And we don't see any prescriptions that say women should be elders. Therefore, our elder board, it consists of men. Because we think scripturally that's what what the New Testament calls for. But I think that's the limitation that Paul's putting on women. Which means women have a lot of freedom to do ministry in this church. Historically, that has been the truth. We had a woman who was a superintendent of Sunday school, chose the curriculum. We've had women worship leaders. We've had women fill almost every role except for that of pastor, overseer, elder. Because we see that as the restriction on women. Are women allowed to speak in church? You betcha. Are women allowed to lead worship? Oh yeah. Can women teach? Well, we see that that Priscilla taught Apollos. Not only would I say that it is important for women to be able to do these things, but it is essential. Without Priscilla, where would Apollos be and where would the church at Ephesus be? At Connect Group, this is going to shock you, but at Connect Group, women speak. 
And there are times when they speak, and I learn. It's crazy. Women are essential to the ministry. Now, you may disagree with how I handled that. That's okay. That's the church's position. It's the position the church has held for 50 years. It's the position the church holds now. And unless there is overwhelming evidence that proves otherwise, it's the position the church will continue to hold. But I will give the disclaimer because we want to be Bereans, right? We want to we examine Scripture. We don't want to just read our theology into Scripture. And we want to adjust our lives to what Scripture says. So I will say, if, if there is overwhelming evidence otherwise, if there's overwhelming evidence contrary to what I just said, I'm willing to adjust. I'm willing to change my opinion. But I also want to turn to Romans 16 and finish up with this. In Romans 16, Paul gives a long list of people he's commending to the church. A long list of people, he's saying, these are amazing saints in the Lord. Out of the 28 people, he says, nine of them are women. Nine of them are women. You better believe women had a prominent role in the early church. The first woman he commends is a woman named Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The very next one is greet Prisca, which we know as Priscilla, and Aquila, her husband. But but I want to look at, at Phoebe for a second because she's considered a patron, meaning she was the one who was supporting many saints. Many in ministry, Phoebe was, was supporting, as well as Paul. Would Paul's ministry even exist? Well, it was still going to exist. Paul was going to do what Paul was going to do. He knew, that, he knew he had an assignment from God. He was going to do it. But Phoebe helped his ministry thrive. You may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. She is considered a saint. Help her in whatever she may need. That's a pretty big commendation that he's giving. He didn't say, except for these few things, help her in whatever she needs, except, you know, tone it back. Whatever she may need, she is so highly valued. He gives her the freedom to go to Rome. Now, most theologians think that she's actually the one that brought this letter because uh, Centrea, the church that she was from, or the city that she was from, actually was kind of like a suburb of Corinth. So most theologians think that she was the one that brought the letter. That's a pretty high responsibility. But not only did she bring the letter, if that's true, not only did she bring the letter, but almost always in the New Testament, when they were going to deliver a letter, when Paul was writing a letter, he'd give it to somebody to deliver, and then he'd instruct them on how they were supposed to read the letter. Which means not only did she deliver the letter, but she was the one that read it in front of the church. And he also calls her a servant of the church at Centrea. Now this term servant means deaconess. I'm not going to get into the office of deacon. The office of deacon is one that we wouldn't even know about if it wasn't for one little section in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, he has qualifications for a deacon. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't even know that the office of deacon exists. But then beyond that, there's just a few words. There's this huge debate on whether or not women can be deacons or deaconesses. And this huge debate depends on just a few words and how you interpret them, what the meaning is behind them. So I don't want to get into that whole debate. I think the whole point, and I don't want to get into the debate because I think it would miss the point. The whole point of this is how vitally important women are to the church. How vitally important, and I would say essential, women are to the church. God used women in amazing ways in the early church. They were servants. They were hardworking saints. They were patrons supporting the ministry. 
God used these women to make the church flourish. They were actively involved then. Women are actively involved now. Women were essential to the church then, to a healthy, maturing, growing church then. Women are essential to a healthy, growing, maturing church today. So as a church, we desire that all would come to know and grow in Christ. We desire to be faithful to the word of God. This means reading it, not, putting, not to put our theology into it, but to find out what the text means. And then how do we apply it to our life? This is our rallying cry. This is what unites us. This is what puts us in the same boat together. Are you going to row with us? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We understand that we are flawed people with flawed interpretations just trying to figure out what it means and how to apply it. And we pray that you would give us humility as we read it. Give us humility and the the humility to recognize that we don't always have it right. And as a church, we pray that you would help us to be unified, bound together by these